Today I welcome Jane Lunnan, Head of Alain School in the UK. In this episode, I discuss the differences between leading a single-sex versus co-ed school, tackling sexual harassment in schools, influencer culture's impact on young people and their mental health, and widening access to independent education for children in care. You've now moved from an all-girls school to a co-educational school. How's that been? Well, I mean, are you asking about the actual move, which has been mad? So I started in January. I started as head here at Alain School, which is just, I'm so, you know, it is one of the great honours of my life, I have to say, to be the 12th head of this remarkable school. It's an amazing community. But I started in January in the middle of a lockdown. So it has been brilliant and bonkers, actually, (laughs) to be honest. I don't know what to say. It's a very strange thing running a school when the world shuts down, coming in new as the head. And for me, it meant a lot of time thinking creatively about how to understand my community when it's all online, how to get in front of people, how to be seen, how to be heard, how to make sure we're still connecting. And was it difficult? Because you obviously were ahead of a school in lockdown anyway. So you went through it. And I suppose it must be harder in some regards, coming to a brand new school, knowing how your school adapted and adopted it, coming to a new school, they would have gone through a similar but maybe different process. Was there any point of kind of conflict or difference in terms of the approach that you had at Wimbledon High School as opposed to what Alan's were doing? Did you find that difficult? Well, very fortunate in that I led Wimbledon until the end of the summer term. And then I had a lovely sabbatical term. How lucky, how incredibly fortunate was I. Thank you so much, GDST. And I needed it, actually. You know, I'd had COVID in that summer term as well, at the beginning of it. And then obviously, we're all kind of crisis management. Again, leaving a school in lockdown, you know, a school that I really loved and gave my heart to, that was incredibly hard. So, but what that meant is it did actually put quite a bit of distance between what had happened, what I'd done in Wimbledon in one lockdown, and then actually what we did at Alain's in the second. In terms of doing things differently, I mean, we literally picked up the school in January. I had my very first planning meeting with my brand new SMT on New Year's Eve. (laughs) Can you believe? On New Year's Eve online. And it was like, right, guys, how can we turn our school into a mass testing centre? And how can we offer full online education? And we literally picked up the entire school and put it online everything, every single element of it that could possibly be done, including, you know, online CCF, every single thing. Because I felt so strongly, second time round, we've got to make sure we replicate as best we can the structures and routines that keep our kids grounded, actually, and reassured and make them feel safe. And the entire world's been turned upside down again. But if you know you've got to be here for form time and you are, you know, at half past 10, there will be a break and you will go out and then you're going to come back and this is going to happen. It helps to shape and reassure and provide critical structures for teenagers. So anyway, and, you know, God bless the staff here. They just rose to that challenge as they has risen to every single challenge with the most incredible generosity of spirit and commitment and grace. Absolutely amazing. And it's always tough coming into a new school. Your reputation precedes you. You are well known in in the educational circle. So, you know, again, you come in, I imagine that New Year's Eve conversation again. Okay, what are we going to be in for here? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know know if Jane, the whirlwind Lonnon has yet. (laughs) is doing the rounds but yeah I mean Simon you're so acute and you're absolutely right of course the thing around exacerbated I suspect by the fact that of course I've just had this lovely term off a lovely term of rest in beautiful Dorset and you know reading and planning and doing loads of research so I come in guys what should we do (laughs) and meanwhile (laughs) actually 
A, massive credit to the community here. You know, they are completely and utterly committed to excellence in whatever form. You know what, if it's excellence in the middle of a lockdown, well, what does that look like? That's all we're going to do. And recognising as well that excellence isn't a fixed thing. <laughs> you know, it's excellence is also about that constant inquiring mindset. It's which of this thing, this stuff that we've got together, which could we be doing better? You know, how can we tweak this to improve it? And that's absolutely the spirit and the attitude that this school, I'm sure, has always had but certainly I found here, you know, they've absorbed the London phenomenon with, with great grace because they really care about the kids and about, you know, offering outstanding education. Yeah. And, and what about you and your leadership styles? So, you know, you have led Wimbledon High School and all girls school being very vocal about women values, leadership about all the things to do with girls education. You've now gone to a co-ed school. Have you had to adapt or change your leadership styles because it's a co-educational school? Or do you think that Everything that you adopted and led at Women High School still really applies, but just with girls and boys. So I think there's two things to that question. So in terms of style, no, not not at all. My approach is still absolutely the same. You know, the, come on in, the water's lovely. <laughs> you know, um, absolutely live adventurously. Let your life speak. Let's do it together. You know, whether it's boys and girls, whether it's men and women, or single sex or co-ed, that's what I believe in. Lead from the heart and authentically, and because we all care about it, because we're all lucky enough to be teachers doing a, you know, the wonderful job of bringing up and educating incredible young men and young women. So the style is just about the same energy and ideas and collaboration and support and understanding. I I hope that's what I, that's what I bring. And I would always do that. In terms of, in terms of what I'm saying though, definitely I'm not now running a single sex school. I'm running a co-education school. So, and I've had experience of both in my career to date. So I do you know, I, I spent a lot of time in a co-ed school, working in a co-ed school as well as girls only. But single sex is now definitely for others to advocate, Simon, for sure, because that's not going to be me. And now what I'm talking about are the joys of co-ed. And the truth is, the honest truth of it is that both single sex and co-ed have real pros and real cons, as, as everything does. And what it's my job to do as the head of this school is to make sure that I'm really honest about what we do really well, but to make it clear that this is what co-education means. It's great that there is choice. It's great that there is variety, but just make sure that people know what those choices are and what they involve. Off you go. I suppose it's because you've written a lot around feminism and the power of single sex education over the years, because, you know, just tell you, you know, you were the advocate because you were leading an all girls school. There'll be some people in some camps that go, well, this was Jane. This was your view. It was single sex all the way. You're now part of a co-educational school. Are you changing your approach just to suit the circumstances? Do you still believe in the values and the things you, you wrote about in the past? So just really quickly, I'm not now going to be you know, my job is now to sell my school. I 100%, absolutely 100% still think there are, you know, that single sex education is absolutely the right thing for some kids and co-education is the right thing for some kids. So that, and to be honest, I always, I always thought that. Um, But the point on feminism and that message, I'm not changing that, 100% not changing that because feminism is about justice and equality. Why wouldn't we want to fight for that? In fact, I have to say, one of the most exciting, amongst many exciting things about coming here, Simon, one of the most exciting things has been to have this conversation with boys and girls. So, for example, we have gender champions here who are, you know, who are helping to basically help to shape the kind of gender policy, basically, and, and our way forward. And we literally set that up in the last term. We just said, right, who would like to? We've had over 100 volunteers from the kids, almost as many boys as girls. I mean, that is unbelievably exciting. I think it matters. I think it really, really matters that we have both, you know, whatever your gender, you're part of the conversation about feminism. 
all the staff here are doing feminist training. All the staff, support staff, academic staff, doing training run by a group called Feminista. You know, because this matters, this is an issue for our time. So no, I'm delighted that we're having this conversation and there's no way. I mean, what I want is for everyone at Allianz to be proudly endorsing feminism. Have you noticed any difference in the way that pupils learn at girls and co-ed schools? Or I know you had big experience, obviously, at Wellington College, then you went to Wimbledon High and now you're at Allianz. Do you see a big difference in the way they learn? Has it changed since your time at Wellington? That's a really interesting question. Has it changed since Wellington? I mean, certainly, full disclosure, at Allens, I have, because of the lockdown, I've had, I think it is six weeks now with yeah, kids on the ground. So, I, well, no, the good news is I've watched five lessons, five absolutely brilliant lessons in, the, in those six weeks. And actually, what I've seen in all of those is the girls bossing it, to be honest. I think it's all about atmosphere. It isn't about single sex or co-ed. It's just about what levels of trust and mutual respect and understanding, shared purpose in something bigger than yourself, do you have in the school? Because if you are all super excited about the satellite you're busy building or the problem in trigonometry that you're all engaging with, if you're all kind of engaged, the gender thing doesn't come into it. It shouldn't and doesn't. Now, that won't always be the case. There will be some lessons that, you know, when we're doing PFCHE or something, but even there, you know, really, again, it feels to me it really matters that girls hear what issues that boys have, boys hear the issues that girls have. So has it changed since Wellington? Have the way boys and girls learn together? It's really hard to say because it's such a different context. Wellington was a boarding school also seven or eight years ago. I mean, I think what digital learning has brought into the classroom, the way that democratises but also opens up learning is really striking. And actually, that can be a very important thing, you know, to challenge preconceptions, but also to stop kids getting into a kind of internalized rut or being a bit closed in their thinking you know if you find that actually what you're doing you're running a history lesson and and you're engaging with a class of historians over in America or you're talking to kids in the school in Sierra Leone as part of your assembly you know those things even eight years ago in in Wellington were, were far less straightforward than they are now so I think that that has changed everything about the way we teach which is unbelievably exciting. It's easy to jump on a, a single sex or co-ed kind of bandwagon and go, look, this is just because this is where I'm at. This is the right way. You know, I'm, I'm a great believer that there, there is a right school for every child. And some some girls will learn much better in an all girls school. Some will learn better in a co-educational school and likewise with boys. And so it's always it's, it's always difficult to polarize. But it, it, people want to polarize because it makes conversation. Um, I want to talk about confidence because girls always seem more confident when they're in a single sex. And I know you've spoken about body image amongst young women a lot. Do you sense that it's different in the co-ed school? The girls that I've come across here so far are extremely confident. If it works, what you actually see, the people who are advocating co-ed will tell you, and this is what you can see on the ground, that the benefit of co-ed is you're not othering the other gender or another gender. You're not, you know, they're not this kind of strange, slightly mysterious, slightly exciting other. They're just the people you grow up with. So self-consciousness in terms of your body, I don't think is particularly exacerbated in a co-ed environment, depending on your child, need not be. However, do I think that body image is a massive problem for our young people? Absolutely, I do. Along with other mental health concerns, I am really... And that's worried. boys and girls, you know. We, boys we, and girls, it's always uh, yeah. Easy, it's always easy to go, oh, it's the girls, but it's not. It's, we, we, we have to bring the boys into this conversation. You know, if we're not very careful... If we don't very quickly bring the boys into a conversation, we're going to have a whole other host of problems. So just on the body, I mean, it's true that girls are at the sharp end of that. And that is because, you know, as you know, Simon, there, there has been many millennia of, you know, conditioning of women to be attractive to men, you know, more so than the other way around. So we're fighting history in that sense. 
So there is no question that they are at the sharp end, but absolutely there are rising concerns for body image issues amongst boys as well. So, and if it's not that, it's other mental health concerns. So, you know, suicidal ideation, self-harming, eating disorder. I mean, these are only today, you know, there's something from the NHS saying that the demand for those services, mental health services relating to those pathologies has increased by 50% since COVID. By 50%. And before COVID, the services were really creaking. They were really under pressure. So we've got a massive problem in this country. And I think everybody in education needs to be looking at it. We, at parents, government, teachers, we all need to really put our creative thinking hats on as to how we can help kids with this. But I do take your point. And I, if I may just come back to the boy-girl thing. So it's an amazingly exciting time, notwithstanding everything I've just said, which is really worrying. But it's an amazingly exciting time to be an educator, I think. There is a paradigm shift in the way kids are identifying and are thinking about themselves, not just differences in the way they, they see themselves and, and their relationship to gender, but also just ever since Me Too, the whole question of the voice of women and the power of girls, the power of women, the only space, you know, everything about what it means to be a woman and to be feminine um, or to be female has been under scrutiny as, and, and really healthily so. An amazing movement has arisen and great power to girls. And you can see it on a daily basis, girls who are empowered and speak out and say, no, no, I'm not putting up with this. But alongside that, you have the question of, but what about boys? What about men? We have a really equally urgent job, I think, to define what it is to be a young man in the 21st century, because all of the stuff around, you know, traditional masculinity, which is so closely aligned with power and with physical strength, you know, it's just not relevant in a post-industrial digital age. It just isn't. And so increasingly strong, independent, powerful women and girls and boys who are uncertain. And that is a real issue, which we must engage with. We must address. We need to talk to our boys I just think it's one of these things that is enormously, I just don't see how we can crack it. I know it's not me giving up, but I'm just, <laughs> I, I, I just look at the abundance, you know, I mean, I've got two boys and two girls and, you know, for me, I'm, I'm in a very fortunate position as a father, but I look equally at both sides and I have to as a father, but I get to see the issues they're going through and I worry equally for both of them. And I don't find a bias either way because I see the body image stuff that my boy will have, not being a lad's lad and the classic masculine stereotypes that exist. And I remember you spoke about Love Island a few years ago and how it doesn't necessarily give realistic expectations for how young people should look. This is a boy and girl thing. And it's, I think, would you agree that it's having those on and available and accessible that's just driving this dangerous pace? I mentioned Love Island, not because it's the most dangerous or damaging material they can access online, if only it were, but just because at the time that I was talking about it, it really was dominating the national discourse. I mean, it was in kind of mainstream media. Everyone was talking about it, even at people my age at parties. It was like, oh, you know, there was a doctor, I think, who, you know, who's the doctor? Is anyone going to hook up with a doctor? It was just, you know, and I suppose on one level. But he wasn't your typical doctor, was he? No, he, he I mean, wasn't. He, he, he wasn't. Yeah, he was, no, yeah. I, I, and I'm sure he's a very nice guy. The boy, you know, and in that sense, of course, it was just doing the job of a soap opera. Like, you know, and there's nothing, again, I, I love narratives. There's nothing wrong with narratives. Had they been just a range of normal looking people, young people, who are just reflecting the standard physical diversity that we have in this country, I wouldn't have had the slightest problem with it. You know, great, let, let them go off and, and, and explore what it is to be, you know, to be young people. It's no different from many of the other programs. I really, really was troubled by what I felt was the message, which is that you've got to be beautiful to be loved, really. And even these incredibly beautiful people, still some were more beautiful than others. And so you weren't getting the, the whole programme was predicated on people not getting enough likes or whatever. 
everything about it, everything about it was just belittling and a depressing indictment on the quality I felt of our national discourse. And I suppose, well, here I am, I'm a head teacher of a school. You know, surely we can do better than this. Surely, surely, you know, as a nation, we can find better things to talk about if we are going to have our national consciousness gripped. Can't it be gripped by something that really matters? The problem with it is if we allow something like Love Island, which of course, just a bit of fun, a bit of frivolity, if we give it this level of airtime and national scrutiny and focus, then I think we are actually giving dangerous weight to messages that we don't really want our kids to get, which is, again, around what a perfect body is, what it is to be beautiful. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. What have we got to do then? This isn't a school job. This is a parent job. And I worry that parents, you know, there's parent apathy, you know, it's parent misunderstanding, parent time. You know, I certainly feel overwhelmed and I would like to think I'm, I'm more connected with the issues than most people. But even I feel overwhelmed with knowing what I should know and what I should be saying. How do we tackle the parent piece? Funny you should ask that. I've literally just come from a meeting with uh, some of my completely fabulous key pastoral staff addressing exactly that question. And, and one of the things that I said is, honestly, 10, 15 years ago, we would not have had pastoral staff sitting together saying, right, what can we do to support the education of parents? Here we are giving a lot of time and a lot of creative thought to just exactly that problem. So, and, you know, most of us in the room are also parents and totally empathise with what you've just said, which is, you know, part of the problem is the way we all work now, which is, which means that we have very little time. You know, what time we have is, you know, the blurring between home and work is much more of a thing. That bit around family time, the bit where we stop, we literally stop and give our attention to each other in our household, which used to just happen routinely, really much harder to do. You know, that feels like one of the really key points and and what we've been talking about here, and we're incredibly fortunate. You know, I know that we have lovely, lovely, engaged, interested parents here at Alain's, but they have the same questions and the same concerns. And what we've been talking about is stripping it right back to actually you know, running sessions for us as staff and alongside parents around coaching conversation, you know, how to have the conversations in the first place, how to manage communication around stuff that is difficult, whether it's how kids are running their sexual lives, what they're doing online, what your expectations are as opposed to the parent next door, all of that stuff, how to have those conversations, how can we support? And a a lot of it comes down to, you know, genuinely sort of guidance about coaching parent information evenings a bit too formal and a bit too process driven they're slide driven there is no sense of it we're really in this together we're in it together and Simon that's what we need I, I wrote a piece for the times the other day that um on the back of the everyone's invited thing and my point was one of the points <laughs> was the adults in the room have not been in the room it's not that we didn't know about the online thing we did I don't think parents or teachers the grown-ups really really have been properly engaging with the extent to which our kids' sexual lives are playing out online. No, we're not 100% right. I think parents are nowhere near it. You know, the way we deal with it is, you know, because we, we give our kids a device, they give access, unlimited, really unrestricted access. They seem happy. We forget that kids will lie and they'll lie to your face. And I find that out later when my daughter turns 18. And she goes, oh, by the way, this all happened. And I'm going, I, I wish you hadn't told me. I'm glad you're alive. You realise that, that that's part of growing up. And you only deal with it when there's a problem or you discover 
a problem and it may be by chance or something really bad has happened or something's happened and you go digging deeper. But at that point you go, everyone seems happy. Everyone seems fine. I don't want to rock the boat. How do we get parents to take more of an active interest? Because we're addicted ourselves and we can't get ourselves off the phone. One of the things, as I said, is, you know, we, I feel like this is a therapy session. No, no, I, I, I'm not well, for both of us. I mean, but this is, I think we're modeling exactly what needs to happen, which is really open, honest, connected conversations about not we've got all the right answers, but just we're in it together. How can we help each other? One, that total trust between school and home, that has to happen. Two, I do think emphasis on the skills of coaching, which, which are a transformative way to have conversations with teenagers. And actually, three, reminding parents that teenagers are just not necessarily going to want to talk to you because you're their parent. And it doesn't mean they're not talking to somebody. Reminding them of that and giving them ways of keeping that door open, I think. And then four, we're doing, I mean, what we're doing is literally surveying all our stakeholders. So pupils, staff, parents, about what they want from their digital lives. There's just zero point in saying, put the genie back in the bottle. You know, there's just not. I mean, of course, at school, we can look at, you know, access to phone during the day. In fact, we are looking at that. So we honestly, from September, it's not going to be quite as extensive as it is now. But, you know, that's that's not it. The issue is how do we learn to live in a flourishing, happy way with this radical thing that's happened to us all? And you're right. You know, we are as addicted as anyone else. So I think the first thing is to say, right, what do we all want? You know, as parents, what do we want? As students, what do we want? As staff, what do we want? Start with that and then say, right, okay, what are the rules, guidelines that we can put around that and get everybody to agree. So the deal is we came up with this together. We came up with these 10 ideas, these 10 rules, these 10 guidelines together. It doesn't mean that we'll always stick to them, but at least we know that broadly this is what we all think. Because one of the really striking things that we've already done a bit of this work with the kids here, and one of the really striking things that came up is that they are, one, desperate for their parents to attend sessions at school. And two, they want their parents' attention. When I am talking to my mum, I don't want to feel that she's looking at her WhatsApp at the same time. That literally, that is a quotation. And I'm familiar with that myself, you know, so really trying to be present when our kids are talking to us. I think, and just sort of accepting the times when we're not going to be, so not beating ourselves up either. You know, we've also, you know, providing for them and bringing home the bacon and they won't have this lovely house. We won't have that phone if we're not bringing a salary home. We've got to do our jobs. But saying, just so you know, I am listening to you, but I've got to do this. And I've got to do this because you know, now is time, we're going to be sitting down together for supper. So you can either tell me this and I'll half listen, or in an hour, I'm properly with you and I'm properly going to be hearing you. I think also parents being really interested. I don't mean in a, we've got to guard you sort of way, but really genuinely interested in the positive things that their kids are doing online. So in the same way that you would be interested in your kids' books on your kids' bookshelf, and you might have really interesting conversations about what you read, the same, you know, curating the online library or being connected to, what are you following? Who are you interested, you know, who are you following on on Snapchat, on Instagram? Why? That's interesting. Can I say, you know, that conversation, I think we could be much better at. But then, you know, your 30-year-old daughter, you know, it's like, rolls the eyes going, yeah, why are you interested? But do you know what? It's present. I don't think we're present enough. And I think that that, something that we've got to as a society get better at and if we are to steward these young men and women to go off and to run this world that we've left them or leaving them we have to craft out present I I know I fail in that and then I do kick myself when I go I haven't done enough other people say actually you do more than anyone I know Simon there's always a part of I could always do more it is and I think we I totally agree with you I think and again, that's slightly where coaching comes in, because that is you can't have a conversation like that unless it's your whole mind on it, because it's about really attentive listening, isn't it? And 
so so it only works if you really are listening carefully and, and then picking up the cues I think you're right I think there's stuff around how we we practice those skills and it's, it's not just being present for our kids it's also actually being present for ourselves it's actually taking time for ourselves to do something that we like that isn't involved with the phone or you know and again in a school context you can do that so obviously you can do that through a really stimulating curriculum so if kids are most powerfully present when they are really engaged in something if they're really really excited by and that's the hope you inspire them so much in the classroom that they just lose themselves in that moment they are in that moment and that of course is what an amazing co-curricular program can do so anything that you do at home to encourage the stuff you know, the hobbies, the whatever it is, you know, it's worth having the fight about the piano. I gave up with my kids far too early on the piano. They were six, they want to practice and I just couldn't be bothered. I thought, I, don't, I was like, I don't want music to be a, a source of argument. So, so I gave up and therefore none, neither of them played the piano. It's terrible. You know, really, those are, it is worth not relentlessly, you know, pushing our kids to, to succeed, but to find their thing, to find whatever their thing is, that's going to make them shine and be doing something else. Yeah. And you and I absolutely share that dream. You know, and, and that's the reason for education. It's why you get into education. It's why I like talking to educators because, you know, you are trying to ignite that spark that's going to, you know, find that passion for life. And you always do, Simon. Where every time I see you talk, it's so exciting. I mean, you are, ironically, it is all about digital stuff. You talk so brilliantly and so, and so passionately. You absolutely embody that thing of being really present in a moment. And that is what captivates people. But I don't do it enough. And it's, you know, I, I look at my diary, it's back to back. I fill every minute. I, I missed lunch day again. I just I booked in a meeting I didn't need to book. But I, you book it in and then it's your day goes on and you go and then you go back and then you don't have the time. And I, I'm very bad at finding that time. But it's something, you know, I, I'm conscious of, but I need to back in. And, and we just need to be things. disciplined. We just need to be disciplined. Disciplined is the word. And I've got it written up there. <laughs> it is disciplined. I've just got it just out of, out of kilter. I think, you know, but maybe the answer, I, you know, my solution to that, because I'm obviously just like you, exactly the same. And I always say, yeah, I could do that. But a solution is put it in your diary, literally diary it. So it's another meeting. It's just a meeting I'm having with myself or I'm having with my kids if that's what you need to do, you know, but whatever it is. I'll tell you something. I, I actually put in, I, I block out now every Wednesday and there's no meetings to be booked. But how often do you think that happens? Not very often, but it, it's getting better. And I do, and I take myself away and I, I disappear somewhere and I go away and that's my day out of the office. And I'm trying to do it every Wednesday because there's things I need to do anyway that don't involve the business, don't involve anything, just involve me thinking and being present in different ways that aren't tied to everyone else's need or, or problem. I mean, you mentioned earlier about everyone's invited and that's something that's been the big thing that's been talked around since, you know, in, in 2021 beyond COVID and lockdown and everything else. Obviously, independent schools have been shook by the allegations of sexual harassment posted on the website, such as everyone is invited. What part do schools play in ensuring young women and girls feel safe and respected? Yeah, I mean, really, really good question. And um, as along with everything else that we talked about, you know, the role of schools is absolutely critical, isn't it? I mean, it really is because, you know, for the reasons that we've just been discussing, you know, so much of the kids messaging, so much of the, the, the children's sense of themselves, their sense, their confidence, their, their ability to say no, to call it out, not to be a bystander, all of that stuff that is so important about making sensible choices if you're in a social situation where things look risky, you know, comes from school, comes from education at school. But it is only one part. The, the truth is most of the stuff, not all of it, but the vast majority of the stuff on Everyone's Invited was about, you know, behaviour and social situations. It was, it was about what was happening in events. 
beyond the school gates, you know, in kids' social lives. And so it's both about what we teach at school, how we can reinforce messages, how we can give kids the confidence, the self-confidence and assurance they need to say no or to get themselves out of difficult situations. In the boys' case, you know, sometimes they are also victims of it, but if not, it's also for them to absolutely understand what consent means, difference between harassment and abuse, you know, really understanding the legal terminology here and the implications of what they're doing. So all of that is our job and it's our job to make sure that kids know that. But I'm afraid, again, it is absolutely about working with parents. You know, it's about parents being aware of what their kids are doing, where they're going, what they're saying yes to when they say you can go to this party, you know, what time they're picking them up. You know, the horrifying thing. I mean, there was there was lots about everyone's invited, of course, that was just so distressing and so difficult to read. And there's plenty about, you know, stuff at universities and people who are adults now. You know, perhaps the most distressing stuff is that a lot of it was from children. They need the adults in their lives on both sides, school and home, to be taking the role of an adult. And I think what it was and where I take heart from it, if if you can take heart from such distressing stuff, is that it was a cry. It's a cry for help. It It was a cry for really it was an outcry. But, you know, the kids want to be heard. They want their voice to be heard. They are worried about what is happening in peer on peer situations and they need help with it. And so we just absolutely have to listen to that. I mean, and in terms, again, in terms of what, I mean, it's just a great opportunity to explore. Thank God, you know, we are not complacent in any way at all. Alliance has been co-ed for 50 years and it is, you know, one of the hallmarks of this school is the respect between boys and girls. I'm not saying that they're still teenagers and they do get it wrong. We have had a few instances that we've had to deal with. That said, we have really, really looked at it and I had a full independent audit of our safeguarding. I just got somebody independent in to say, right, you know, I'm new. I want to know everything. I want you to tell me that we are absolutely doing the job of keeping our kids safe and following exactly the right processes. But it's also changing the, it's changing policy and processes because they were set up for different problems because all these things happened it's almost adding adding more to the remit to say let's go deeper first and foremost it's make sure we're doing what we're meant to be doing that's the job so that's what that did so what we're doing here and honestly something this is to come back to the co-ed thing this is where it's a privilege to be in a co-ed environment really is what we've said is right okay we think we do this well the kids think we do this well not perfectly but well we do have stuff to learn again let's just have really open undefended honest conversations boys with boys girls with girls and then boys and girls together. We literally collapsed the timetable. We did that across, run by senior students, but with kind of staff floating around as well. From all of that, then talk to parents, talk to alumni, talk to staff, all stakeholders again. And then our lovely gender champions, over 100 of them, to working with alumni and to create our charter of, of gender equality. And what that means is, right, we believe in mutual trust and respect between the genders. Codify it. What is that? What, what does that look like on the ground? What does that mean in terms of catcalling or messaging on the phones or whatever it might be? What does that look like? And, you know, the really good example is one of the things that I heard a lot when this first broke was people saying, no, no, don't worry, Jane. The Alain's boys have a great reputation. They always look after the Alain's girls. Well, on one level, that is wonderful. God bless them. But on another level, I'm like, what, what do you mean they look after? What about feminism? <laughs> what about the girls looking after themselves? And, you know, so, but that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Around these are the kind of conversations that we need, we need to have. So it has been amazing here, I have to say. It's been such a useful thing to do. And as you say, one part of the things that are coming out is we're not asking the right questions. We haven't got the right processes. We've got two things we've got to look at. One, we are not properly connecting with the online digital sexualized life that our kids lead. 
We've got to find a way to deal with porn. We've got to find a way to address the incredible ease with which they can, you know, send naked photos of each other. We've got to find a way of teaching them to resist the peer pressure. Then girls are not frigid if they don't send pictures of their body parts to their boyfriends. You know, we've got to get hold of those messages and be really explicit about them. So that's got to happen. And we've got to do it with parents. And we've got to be really, really open with parents. They've got to understand. And then the second thing is, I think we've got to look at why did this all come out online? (laughs) Why did this all come out on a website? But I mean, the bizarre thing, I think a lot of the reason why people come out online is because even though it's, it's broadcast, it almost feels paradoxically safer because it, it, it's a bit anonymous, but also you know that I'm not speaking to you directly. I'm not going to there. And actually, you know that it has a better chance of getting its voice out there. You feel a bit more protected. It's an odd one. Like, and I can really understand that rather than, to, you know, in person going to someone, you don't get the same emotion connection that... And the barriers I would do, like talking to my parents or my kids talking to me, they, they could put it out in a text or a message, which is almost emotive. So it's cathartic, isn't it? They're doing something, but what they're not, they're not getting a lot back. I mean, there was, you know, there's very little interaction on that website or, or other, you know, so, but yeah, but I totally agree with you. I mean, that is, that is it. And the other issue, of course, is that in a school context, if kids raise anything that is, you know, that would meet the threshold for peer on peer abuse, absolutely, it has to be referred to social services. And if it's criminal, it has to be referred to the police. And of course, that is a massive deterrent. You know, even if a girl is feeling, you know, has been the victim of something and would really want to talk it over and is, you know, needs some support and needs some help. Or indeed, if a boy has been the victim of something or if either one of those genders has perpetrated something, has, been, has done something they didn't want to feel shame, whatever the situation, they're not going to want to necessarily criminalise it. And that's the issue. The irony and the real problem, paradox that we've got at the moment, I think, is that the very mechanisms that we put in place, the bureaucracy we put in place to safeguard our children, some of that is getting in the way of them having the conversations they need to have. Yeah, that's so true. I want to wrap up our chat today on a lighter note, maybe. A lot of independent schools do a lot of outreach around bursary programmes, but Allen's is part of a pilot project to offer bursary places to children in care. Tell me about this project and how it came about and how you got involved. Yeah, so, I mean, actually, this is, I'm so glad you asked about this. Almost, it's the most, I mean, amongst all many, many exciting things that we are doing, this is really right up there. So I'm lucky enough to have um, had an association with a charity called Royal National Springboard Children's Foundation, which is a charity which started off actually raising money for bursaries for seriously deprived kids. So kids from seriously deprived backgrounds to place them in boarding schools and thereby offer them a totally transformative educational experience. And they've been running like that for over 10 years. That 700 more kids have gone through a most astonishing success rate. So a 97% retention rate. And that's you know, game changing for those kids, for their families, for their friends, you know, so there's a real impetus. It's a very powerful charity. Anyway, they are now looking to expand into the day pupil arena. And the start of that is to say, well, look, which group of children are most at need of really powerful educational intervention? And it is the looked after children. So they are the ones with the worst educational outcomes in this country for obvious reasons. Springboard are piloting with a group of specially chosen. We feel so fortunate to be one of the chosen schools piloting this rollout. So placing kids who are in who are in care or who looked after into independent day schools around the country. It is a pilot. The government are supporting it. And we really hope it will work because it could be absolutely game changing. Simon, I mean, it could be just a real really powerful intervention across the country it's a great pilot project for sure it's not going to be an easy road you know trying to 
transition children in care with their with their lifestyles or their, their background and the environment into a very privileged environment in and itself is difficult. But I know that with you at the at the helm of the school, that it's going to be a, a really well thought out and well implemented um, pilot program. And I really do wish you the best of luck. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.